Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 11. And when you find there, find that, we're going to conclude Matthew chapter 11 today. And we've, we will uh, deal with one of the most recognizable verses in this book. And those verses are found in verse, the verse is found in verse 28 and verse 29. It says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. Now I want you to notice, we're going to cover verses 25 through 30, but these famous verses right here, I want you to notice in the word rest is used twice. Do you see that? At the end of verse 28, I'll give you rest. And then at the end of 29, you'll find rest for your souls. So the goal of this passage is that we will find rest. That's the goal. That's the end game. But to reach this goal, we have to take certain steps. And that's what the rest of the passage is about. So how do you find rest? Now, before we actually look at these verses, let me explain for those who are visiting and those who may not have been here in the past week or two, that chapter 11 deals with perceptions. How people perceive Jesus. How people perceive John the Baptist. And what we've discovered is that the Jewish leaders reject John the Baptist as God's prophet, and they reject Jesus as God's Messiah. That would be the Jewish leaders and the nation as a whole. In the end, how many people stand with Jesus? Even his disciples run and hide, and one denies him, and one betrays him. So this there's a turning point in this chapter where... Jesus has performed great miracles and throngs have come out to see Him. And you'll still see throngs. But there is a turning of opinion. And so they have taken a stand against John. They say he has a what? A demon. And about Jesus, they say he is a drunkard and a glutton. A wine-bibber and a glutton. And Jesus, in response to that, says this. If the great works, the miracles that I had performed, were done in Sidon and Tyre and Sodom, like they've been done in your cities, your Jewish cities, those cities and the people in those cities would have repented long ago. But you have seen these things, and your pride just puffs up, and you do not repent. You reject the signs of God that authorize me as the Messiah. So the Jews have had every opportunity and every reason to repent, having seen the miracles of Jesus, but pride and position stand in their way. And that's why people do not come to Jesus. The pride stands in the way. So now what Jesus does is he turns and he offers the invitation to come to him to the masses of poor people. He's offered it to the leaders. Now he goes and he just offers it to all the poor people and the humble people. And so here's how we're going to outline these verses today. We're in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. We're going to see Jesus' prayer. Okay, Jesus' prayer. Verse 27, we're going to see Jesus' declaration. 
And then verses 28 and 29, or 28, 29, and 30, we're going to see Jesus' invitation. Okay? Jesus' prayer, Jesus' declaration, and then verses 28 through 30, Jesus' invitation. So let's look at his prayer. Here's what he says. At that time, this is what Matthew writes, at that time Jesus answered and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Now what I want to do is I want to break down these verses for you. Okay? So look at verse 25. Look what it says. At that time Jesus answered and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. Hidden what things? What has he hidden? Uh, his mission as God's Messiah. They've rejected Jesus. And why did they reject Jesus? Because of pride. And God has allowed that to happen. He's hidden uh, who Jesus is. He's hidden the source of Jesus' miracles from these people. He's hidden the identity of John the Baptist from these people. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you can accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. You remember when he said that last week? If you can what? Accept it. They couldn't accept it. It was hidden from them because of their pride. Now to whom was it hidden? Look what it says in verse 25. These things are hidden from the wise. That would be those who are wise in their own estimation. You understand that? It's hidden from the wise, and my translation says, and the prudent, and yours may say the intelligent. These are people who uh, think they have everything together. These are the people who pride themselves for knowing the law of Moses. Those who keep the law of Moses very strictly, they're very prudent, they're very intelligent, they're very knowledgeable. Uh, these are the religious leaders, the people who are proud of their pedigree. Uh, the ones who cavort with the Roman Empire and have uh, landed cushy jobs for themselves in the administration. Jesus says his identity and John's identity and the source of the miracles and understanding of the kingdom is hidden from the wise and from the prudent, from the intelligent. And then look what it says. And he has revealed them to babes. Now think about that. He's revealed them to babes. These are the same people, by the way, mentioned in the last verse of chapter 10. Look at the, right just over a few verses there. 1042 it says, Whoever gives one of these little ones, you see that little ones, a cup of water in my name, or in the name of the disciple, surely I say to you, that person will not lose his reward. These are the little ones. Who are the little ones? Who are the babes? If I ask you what a babe was, in a physical sense, you would say, it's somebody that's helpless. Can't take care of themselves. They can't. You can, don't tell a baby when you bring it home from the hospital, well, the water's over there, and there's the bathroom over there, in case you need to go. This is somebody that's dependent. This is somebody that uh, can't take care of themselves. The wise... The prudent, 
the self-assured miss the message of the kingdom. But God reveals it to the, in this case, we would say the helpless, the insignificant of society, the poor of society, the same people mentioned in 1042. We call these the disenfranchised people. The people who have nowhere to turn for anything except God. They're helpless. And Jesus says to his disciples, you should be helping them. Because they're helpless. It's to those little people that God reveals kingdom truth. So, what are we going to conclude by this? Verse 25. Well, we're going to see, number one, that God conceals. You see that? God conceals. He hides. Number two, God reveals. He unveils. He hides the truth from the wise, in their own estimation, and He reveals it to the infants. Even so, Jesus says in verse 26, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. This is God's way of doing things. God's for the little person. God's for the person who can't help themselves. Because they're the ones who need help. They're the ones that depend upon them. This is God's will. Let me tell you something. If you stand against the little people, and you stand against the poor of society, you're fighting against God. God hides the truth from the oppressors, the people who oppress the little people, and he reveals his truth to the oppressed, the people who need help. God's for the underdog. Every American should be for an underdog. We usually are, aren't we? We're for the Rangers. We're for the Cowboys. <laughs> well, we should be for the people that God's for. These are his underdogs. Now look at verse 27. Jesus says, this is his declaration. Okay, this is the second part of the outline, his declaration. He says, all things, and he turns to the audience probably and says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. Uh, not some things. Look, all things. Jesus is the sole possessor of all things. He's hidden it from the poor. He's given Jesus all authority. Jesus is God's uh, authorized agent. He represents God on earth. All that the Father has belongs to Jesus. Jesus has all of God's authority. He speaks on behalf of God. He has the knowledge of God. Notice he says, all things have been delivered to me. That means exclusively to Jesus. Are there truths? Do other people have truths? Yes. But Jesus has all truth. All has been delivered, he says, to me. To me. In contrast to who? In contrast to the religious leaders. They think they know it all, but Jesus is the one who knows it all. In contrast to the priests, the scribes, in contrast to Caesar. Caesar claims to represent Jupiter, the highest god in the Roman pantheon. He claims to be God's representative on earth. All that God has, all that the Roman Caesar has, he believes comes down from the highest God and comes through his hands and goes out. He believes that he possesses all. Jesus says, no, I possess all. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has given everything, has delivered everything into Jesus' hands. And then he says this in verse 27. 
No one knows the Son except the Father. Now, what in the world would that mean? No one knows the Son except the Father. Well, remember, Jesus is talking to the people of his day. <clears throat> so he's really saying something along this line. No one has the kind of relationship with the Son that the Father has. No one knows the Son as intimately as the Father knows the Son. There's a special relationship between the Son and the Father. If you had a son, you would know your son better than the neighbor down the street, wouldn't you? Why is that? Because you're related to that child. You're the father. He's the son. And then he says, nor does anyone know the father except the son. There's an intimate relationship in that way. It's a reciprocal relationship. They have this relationship with each other. And then he says this. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom what? The Son reveals Him. So if you want to know the Father, Jesus has to reveal the Father to you. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except what? Through Me. So while a lot of world religions have some truth, no one can reach the Father except through Jesus Christ. It takes a revelation. Notice, it takes a revelation. It takes a revelation. Have you seen the word revealed before in this passage? You saw it up there in verse 25. The Father reveals truth to the babes. Do you see that? The Father reveals. Did you see that in verse 25? Who reveals in verse 25? The Father reveals. But in verse 27... Notice who reveals. It's the Son who reveals. The Father works through the Son. Just as Caesar believes that God works through him, Jesus is saying, no, the Father reveals His truth through me. And that's important. Which means, if you miss John the Baptist, if you're against John the Baptist, who preached about Jesus, and you reject Jesus, then guess what? You miss the Father. Now, this is not an easy passage to interpret, but this is what he means. And so Jesus is unique, and he has this unique relationship with the Father, and he reveals the Father to us. So no one can really know what God's like, except through Jesus. If you ask a person on the street what God was like, they give you some sort of answer. If you went overseas to Japan and ask them what God was like, they'd give you an answer. If you went to another part of the world, they'd give you an answer. And if you said, well, what's the basis for your answer? And they would say, for example, well, I believe God's a God of love. And you say, well, why would you believe that? Because I don't believe God would hurt anybody. Well, the basis for their answer is simply their own mind. It's what they imagine God is like based on their logic, on their personality. Jesus says, no one has seen the Father. He's a spirit. Anybody see the Father lately? I haven't seen Him. What's He look like? Can you even see it? Spirit? I have no idea. Where does He live? Oh, He lives in heaven. Well, where is that? Up? Well, up in Texas would be down in China. What part of up? 
What's the, uh, does he, you know, this shows you how ridiculous it is when we say, well, we know what God's like. We don't know what God's like. Who knows what God's like? Jesus knows what God's like. He has a relationship with Him. He's seen the Father. He says that in another passage. And you know what else He says? He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. God reveals Himself through Jesus. Jesus is the exact image of God in human flesh. And as much as we can know, we can only know through Jesus. He is the right image of the Father. Does that make sense? Now we have part three of the text. And this is the great invitation. So look what Jesus says in verse 28. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Now notice to whom the invitation is extended. It's extended to those who labor. To those who toil. Now, don't spiritualize this one. Why do we always want to spiritualize the text? You know what labor means? You're not going to believe this. It means labor. It means those who work. Those who toil under the weight of work. Uh, in fact, that word, labor or toil, the Greek word for labor or toil, is only used one other time in Matthew's Gospel. And you, when you find out how it's used there, you'll know how it's used here. So let me show you that. Just move back to chapter 6. And this is where Jesus tells us not to worry, you know. God will take care of you. And look at verse 28. This is Jesus' illustration when he says, So why do you worry? Remember in verse 21, he says, Don't worry about what you eat or clothes you wear or all this kind of Don't worry about all that. Don't get all hung up on that necessities of life. Verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither what? Toil no spin. Now that word toil is the same word that's translated labor over here in chapter 11. That means they don't work. Have you ever seen a lily work? What do lilies do? Yeah. Now, that's what work means. He's talking about work. Now, notice here in the Word, you got it in verse 28. Come unto me, all you who labor. Now, the people who labor would be the ordinary people in society. In Jesus' day, that would be the poor people who have to labor. And then he says this in verse 28. And are heavy burdened. Heavy burdened. There's a weight on their shoulder. He's talking about the oppressed people, the poor people, the little people who work. They get up before sun, the sun rises, and they go out into the fields in Jesus' day, and they work, and they worked until the sun went down, and for that they got one penny a day. And that was enough to pay for their food for the day. It was just enough to subsist. Everybody in Jesus' society except the top 10% lived on a subsistence wage. There was no middle class like we have. Their work was dependent upon the good weather, and if it didn't, if it rained that day and they couldn't go out in the field, they didn't get enough to eat because they didn't get their salary for that day. These were day laborers. Who, why were they under a weight? Because there were oppressors that they worked for. These were not 
people who believed in democracy. These were not people who tried to get fair wages. They just got by on what they could pay these people. And if you could just get them to pay them just enough to live, you had them under your control. Remember Tennessee Ernie Ford song, don't you? 16 tons. What do you get? He's talking about pulling out the, 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 the coal from the mines. What do you get? Another day older and you get deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call. I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Because the mining company owned the store. And they'd give you 10 bucks a day and then you guess what you had to do? Go to the store that they owned and buy the food. Who ended up getting all the money? All the profits. These are people that are under a heavy burden because of the work. The workload and the poor wages and the oppression. And it reminds you, I think any Jew who would read this, it would have reminded them of the Israelites who were suffering under the burden of the Egyptians before the Exodus. Remember the Egyptians just enslaved the people and made them work harder and harder and they finally cried out to God and God delivered them. And that's the motif here. That's the heavy burden that these people were working on. And so uh, these people need to be delivered. They need to be delivered from their own leaders who are in cahoots with the Romans. And they need to be delivered from the Roman Empire itself. Now, Another, trans, another way of looking at this is that these people are laboring under a heavy burden of the law of Moses. Because the Pharisees are piling upon the people all these 613 commandments that the people have to obey that can be found in the law of Moses and according to tradition... And uh, the people are just trying to keep the law of Moses, all 613 laws and rules, and the Pharisees just laugh when they see them do this. Never try to help them. Never say, well, let me help you with that. You know. Uh, and so they're living under a burden. That could mean that, and that's, it's possible it means both of those. The burden of labor and the burden of the law of Moses, which was too heavy for anyone to keep. So now... Jesus gives the promise. So here's the promise. Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and watch this. I will give you rest. Rest from what? Well, I guess the context would be less rest from the labor and rest from the heavy burden, wouldn't it? You wouldn't want to interpret it any way else because that's the context. Rest from the labor, rest from the burden. Rest from the enemy oppressor. Rest the same way Israel got rest when God delivered them in the Exodus. They were under, under the burden. God delivered them in the Exodus. And what did they get? They get rest? Pretty much. They got rest. I want to show this to you. Keep your finger here. We'll just show you one verse because I think Jesus is sort of quoting this verse. Okay? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and see if this doesn't sound familiar. And when you get to Deuteronomy, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and look at verse 9. You could read the whole section, but just, we'll look at verse 9 and 10. 
And here's what he says. For as yet you have not come to the rest. You've not, for yet you've not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross the Jordan and dwell in the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and He gives you rest. Rest from what? All your enemies, your oppressors. Do you see that? Round about. And there you will dwell safely. So now Jesus says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. The rest would be from the oppressors, from the enemies, the one who puts the work on you, the one who puts the heavy burden on you. They go hand in hand. So Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Uh, when is this rest going to come? Well, he says, when you inherit the land in the Old Testament, that was Israel, going into Jerusalem, this could be a future rest. He could say, if you come unto me one day, you're going to be delivered. I'm going to set up the kingdom. Rome's going to be defeated. And then you will see have rest. Because obviously, do they rest after... Jesus says this, or suddenly everybody resting now? So there's a future dimension to this rest. Now, I think there's a present dimension as well. But definitely when the kingdom comes, we're going to get rest. But look at that invitation again in verse 28. Look at the invitation itself. Notice what it says. Come. If I told you, if I gave you a command to come, that would, make, that would, be a, that would imply some things, wouldn't it? It would mean... You'd have to change locations. I came to Dallas from Rockwall. To come means I had to do something. I had to reorient my car. It was facing into my house in the garage. I had to back out and reorient the car toward Dallas and get in and drive that car. So to come means that you leave something. You turn your back. In this case, it would be they turn their back on their former allegiances. They turn their back on their own leaders, realizing their leaders are not from God, although they claim to be. Turning your back on the allegiance to the Roman Empire. To come means that you go in a different direction. It's another way of saying repent. Reorient your life. Okay. Now, when are we to come? Come to me. I would say that that would mean come to me now. Without delay. You need to come to Jesus now, today is the day of salvation. Where do you come? Look, come to me. You come to a person. Not a location, you come to a person. You come to Jesus. Why do you come to Jesus? Why do you look to Him for the rest? Why do you look for Him to solve your problems and for the deliverance? Because all things have been delivered to Jesus. Who else would you come to? Well, the problem is these people have been coming to Caesar. They've been coming to their patrons, uh, rich neighbors and people in the city who throw them a bone every once in a while when they have to miss a day's work in, in return for chores and honor that they bestow upon these patrons. That's where they've been turning. Jesus says, no, you need to come to me. There needs to be an about face where your allegiance is. Come to me. Why? Because all things have been given to him. Now we have the second part of the invitation. Look what else he says. Verse 29. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now a yoke in Bible times is the same as a yoke is today. It was a wooden harness that went over the shoulders of two oxen, over the neck of two oxen, that linked them together and enabled them, the two oxen, linked together, walking in unison, to carry and pull a heavy load, a heavy burden, a heavy plow that one couldn't do on its own. Jesus says that we need to be linked to Him. And when we're linked to Him, the burden lifts. Because He shares in the burden. And what they would usually do, farmers would put a younger ox with an older ox who knew the ropes, who knew the routine, who knew the daily process, and the older ox took the younger ox under tow in a sense, and the younger, younger ox learned from the older ox. And so Jesus says, take my yoke, put it on your neck, and look, learn from me. Now, both the come and the take means we have a responsibility to do it. Doesn't happen automatically. He gives us the invitation, but we have to voluntarily come. We have to voluntarily take the yoke. He said, so he says, come, take my yoke, and learn from me. Uh, to learn means that uh, we become a follower. We become a disciple, just like the younger ox learned from the older ox. We become one of his learners. He will teach us to navigate the world of burdens that we live in right now. Because a lot of people are under the weight of burdens now. We don't only get rest in the future. There's two rests here. There's a rest in the future when the kingdom comes and we're delivered from the world systems and all the weight of the world. But right now, many of us are living under a weight and we can find rest now if we are linked to Jesus and we become one of his disciples. So he says, learn of me. You become a student of Jesus. And look at the subject matter. You're going to enroll in the school of Jesus. Look at the curriculum here in verse 29. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Here's what you're going to learn from Jesus when you're yoked to him. You're going to learn meekness. That's what gentle means, meekness. It doesn't mean weakness. You can be strong and be meek. You can be strong and not do violent things. Or, and you will learn be lowly of heart, which is humility. Meekness and humility. When you come to Jesus, he'll give you rest. He'll lift the burdens. Now the burdens will still be there. This is the amazing thing. The burdens are still there. But you won't be working and saying, ah, 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 to the boss. 
You'll have a new attitude. In fact, what Jesus does is He lifts the burden because He's going to help you through this. He's not going to deliver you from the work. The work's going to still be there. But it won't be as burdensome anymore if you can learn this truth of resting in Jesus and doing it the way Jesus would do it. Hey, Jesus was under a lot of burdens, wasn't he? But how did he respond? Even when they threatened him with death. You didn't see him go, say, Peter, get your sword. Come on, we're going to fight this guy. He stood there. Didn't even open his mouth. Pilate said, don't you know I could kill you? Jesus said, well, you couldn't do that unless the Father allowed you. They hated Jesus because of the way he responded. But look, who feels the burden now? When he's standing there before Pilate. Does Jesus feel the burden as he's standing before Pilate? Or is Pilate the one who feels the burden? Who's being judged? Is Jesus being judged before Pilate? Or is Pilate being judged before Jesus? Pilate feels such the weight on his shoulders that he says, I'm washing my hands of this man. You see, this is how we can handle it if we do it Jesus' way. This is what it means to be linked to Jesus. And then he says this at the end of verse 29, And you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that interesting? And you will find rest. Not you might. What? You will find rest for your souls. Notice the first rest. Where is that first rest? Up in some other verse. <laughs> uh, which one? 29. Okay, look what he said. Now 29 is this rest. Where's the first rest? 28. Notice. In the first rest, he says, I will give you rest. That's given. You see that? The first rest is something that's given. But look at the second rest. The end of verse 29. That's something that's found. You will find rest. You see the difference? In the first rest, the rest is a gift. That probably is talking about that future rest that we're going to have when the kingdom comes. But look, in the second rest, that's something that can be discovered right now. And here's the reason we should come to Jesus. Because he says, verse 30, For my yoke is easy. Some translations say it's good. It's good for you. It's an easy fit. It's a good fit. My yoke is easy. When you're yoked to Jesus, even though you're having to work, even though you're being oppressed by people, and they're, they're doing this to you, you know what's happening in America now. There's a lot of bad things going on. When you're linked to Jesus, it'll be better because you're yoked to Him. He takes a lot of the weight, a lot of the burden. And then He says this, And my burden is light. It's not light because it's less work. It's light because your attitude is different. Because He, ta he shoulders the weight. So, we can live under anything. If we're yoked to Jesus. But Americans have this mentality that we'll just pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Self-made men. American individualism. <laughs> and uh, that's why I think the message of Jesus, when you really see it, and you've seen it, I've given it to you about as clear as I can give it to you week in and week out. It's radical for the Western mindset like we have. Because it's sort of seen as Everything that we don't believe in, because we say, let's just take the good old Texas expression, the bull by the horns. 
threw that thing down. See? But sometimes the weight is so heavy, and you can't do that. What would happen if uh, this country turned communist, or this country turned fascist, like, or this country turned Muslim, or whatever it is, like it's happening in other places of the world? It's, it's no longer you just taking the bull by the horns, because it doesn't happen that way in those countries. This is a universal message. This is a message that works anywhere. It will work in Russia, it'll work in Cambodia, it'll work in Yemen, it'll work in the United States, but it must be worked. You must take the message seriously. We can live under the burden, and our brothers and sisters in a lot of other countries that are facing true oppression can live under the burden because Jesus helps. See, So if we join the Jesus band, become one of his disciples, we start living by his kingdom principles and ethics, the way he does does it. The burdens are lifted, and I want to tell you something. The reason Christ, one of the reasons Christ formed the church was so we wouldn't have to do things alone. That's why Paul says we are to bear what? One another's burdens. That's what the church is all about. That's what our Sunday school class should be all about. Us bearing each other's burdens. And when we do that and we're linked to Christ, the, light, the load gets lighter and we've got the promise the promise of rest in the future, a future deliverance, and rest in the presence. Next week we'll pick up the chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> Help us to realize that we need to not be weak. We need to be weak. We need, we need to be meek. Help us to be humble. Help us to have the attitude of Christ. Strength through humility. Help us to be people of faith. And trust you to take the burden. And then, Lord, help us to realize that we need, that we are your hands extended on this earth. That you've chosen us, you revealed your truth to us, and now we need to lighten the burden for others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.